Revelation chapter 12. I want to show you guys how cutting edge I am with my slides this morning. I did something really cool, probably wasted 10 minutes that I didn't need to, but watch this. Heavenly showdown, and bam, gunshots. Ba-bam, ba-bam. Wait, there's another one. There it is. My wife uh, jokingly called this a three-point sermon. She said, oh, this is officially a three-point sermon. So, yeah, I groaned when I heard it too. Revelation chapter 12, uh, as we get there, is I want to point out that today we're going to spend some time talking about really the boiled down thing that's going on in the Bible. All of the Bible, by the way, you ever heard that the Bible is a, it's a love letter from God to us? Well, it's also a love story. And in any love story, you have a damsel in distress needing to be rescued. And then there's the, <laughs> you know, the bad guy that's trying to hurt the damsel in distress, maybe tying her to a railroad track. Oh, what's going to happen, you know? And, and then there's the cool piano music and what's going to, in the rising action. And then, of course, onto the scene comes who? The rescuer, whoever it is, the man on the white horse, whatever he might look like. But in this case, we're getting ready to see that that is pretty much the Bible story. And the reason that we love those types of movies and books and the rescuer coming in and rescuing this, this woman that's in distress, help! The reason we like that, as men, we love to be the rescuer. We want to come in and we want to show that we can be the knight in shining armor. We want to deliver the, the one whom we love. And as women, and I can't speak from experience, from, but primarily we, we don't want just some jerk to come up and haphazardly treat us in a, in a way that makes us feel like trash. We want to be loved. I say we, because as the body of Christ, we are the bride of Christ. And he pursues us with such, he's gallant in the way he pursues us. He, he comes riding in as a knight in shining armor to rescue us from the evil one. And as we read Revelation chapter 12, I want you to remember that that's the bulk of this story, that the Bible is all about God creating us to be an object of his love, and as he creates us to be the object of his love, the first thing that happens is that someone else tries to get in between us and the one who loves us, Satan. He comes in the form of a serpent, and as he comes in the form of a serpent, Right there in the beginning of the Bible, God says, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to set this right. And all of the Bible is him preparing that rescue plan until the culmination of it in Jesus Christ, who is the knight in shining armor. And so all of that said, today we will start with our heavenly showdown. But what I want to remind you is that what we experience in this life, relationally, practically, physically, Behind it, as believers, there is a war going on. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 12, Paul points out, he says, a final word, and he's writing this to the Ephesian church, he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil." For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. 
He says, against mighty powers that are in this dark world and against evil spirits in heavenly places. The battles and the wars and the fights and all the things that go on in this life, the striving, we feel it practically, but the reality is there's a spiritual war going on behind the scenes that really is more important than the one we feel. He points out that we're not fighting against flesh and blood. The battles that we wage are not against people. I know that they feel like they are, but they're not against people. There is a spiritual battle for each and every soul that exists. And the battlefront that we should fight on is not against one another, but against the spiritual battle of wickedness, evil versus good that's going on behind the scenes. And so with that being said, God's getting ready to point out to us in the book of Revelation the battle that's going on behind the scenes. So in chapter 12, verse 1 through 4, we realize that the place we're in, we're in the great tribulation. The seventh trumpet has been blown. And it says in verse 15 of chapter 11 that the seventh angel, when it sounded, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And as a result of this, the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones, mentioned previously in chapter 4 and 5, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is, who was, who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come. The time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. And then as a result of this, the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. So as the announcement of God's kingdom being set up, starting officially, the temple of God is open in heaven, the ark of his covenant is seen, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Which is interesting because when Jesus said it is finished on the cross, what happened? Graves were opened, power was released, there was thunderings, there was darkness. There was all these natural signs that pointed to a spiritual reality that was taking place. That the work on the cross was finished once and for all. The battle, the culmination of what Christ was going to do on our behalf was done. But what do we know practically? that the things that we experience in this life, the battle is still waging. So how can the battle be done but still be going? Well, God's outside of time. Everything that he said he would accomplish was accomplished on the cross, done, set, finished. And yet we still live practically and we fight battles daily that are not feeling like they're done and settled and finished. So what does this mean? So then John has revealed to him in chapter 12, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, on her head was a garland of 12 stars, 
And then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. So in this case, we have this allegory, it seems, of a story that ties into everything that's real. We have this woman who I believe is symbolic of the nation of Israel, the nation responsible for bringing Messiah into the world. And as she's, she's in birth pangs and she's getting ready to give birth, there's this dragon, the evil one, the adversary, uh, the man that's getting ready to... to to hurt the, the, the woman, the damsel of, in distress in the story. But notice, if you will, there's a familiar description of this woman in Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. And if you turn there, I'm just going to be there for one verse, but I'll read it to you. Genesis 37, verse 9, and Joseph's dream that God gives him, it says, then he dreamed still another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, look, I've dreamed another dream. And this time, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Now we know that the sun was his dad, and the moon was his mom, but the 11 stars were his brothers. A woman crowned with 12 stars on her head is this woman that has these 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. So she's clothed with the sun, the moon is beneath her feet, and the 12 stars represent 12 tribes, and it's not the first time in Scripture where this is referenced. So the question is, is this woman, is it this woman, this, this nation, Israel, or is it the Virgin Mary who also is clothed and she is given this right to give birth to not a nation, but essentially a kingdom? Being the firstborn, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King. And I would submit to you, as I often do, yes. That it represents the nation of Israel, who is this woman getting ready to give birth to 12 tribes that essentially would be the one to bring Messiah into the world and to whom we owe lots of uh, encouragement because they, because of their taking care of the scriptures, we have the Old Testament preserved. We have the oracles of God that he spoke to them, the annals of scripture. And at the same time, we owe them a debt because they have brought the Messiah in the world through their lineage because of what God did. He says, Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And how is that? Through Messiah. So the Virgin Mary is just one representative. She's a descendant of the nation of Israel, and she gives birth to the Savior of the world. So then onto the scene comes this dragon, this fiery dragon. It has seven heads, which I believe actually represents massive intelligence. He is a uh, pretty slick character. He knows a lot of things, and yet at the same time, he's not omnipresent. But he has ten horns. Horns in the Bible are symbolic of strength or might. 
Ten horts. He's perfect in strength. Biblical symbol of might. And he has crowns, which crowns indicate dominion. You're crowned king. You have dominion over the territory that you're king over. And what Jesus said is that he's the prince of this age, that he's actually royalty. He's able to be, have dominion over the earth. But what we know about his dominion is it's only for a short time. And then also, we see this dragon described uh, in Revelation 13, Revelation 17. But where I'm going to turn is to Daniel chapter 7, because the description is so unparalleled. Daniel, if you remember, I think it was last December or maybe November, or maybe it was two years ago. Time gets away from me. We studied Daniel, and um, in Daniel chapter 7, you have all these descriptions of beasts, and yet in Daniel chapter 7, the fourth beast is found in verse 7. Daniel writes, After this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had, look at this, ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now think about this. There's a spiritual reality. There's this beast. There's this dragon. And amongst this dragon, there's ten horns. The ten horns are not just horns spiritually or allegorically, but they're ten leaders that will come up under the influence of Satan. But then out of those ten horns will come up one, and he'll speak great pompous words, words of flattery, words where you can actually get peace on earth through them. We've already talked about this, this leader, and he'll be influenced by Satan, but he will be Antichrist. And when he steps up, he will be among those leaders, and then he'll rise above them as the one to bring words of peace that seems like a really great solution. But then it says there in verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, and it describes Jesus to a T. And then it goes on to describe this battle that's going to take place. Verse 11, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So Daniel was seeing what was going to take place in the heavenlies. And he was kind of seeing through a glass dimly what would take place practically on earth. And yet what we're going to see today is a fulfillment of that. Now that we know that this man that was crowned and clothed in white, this deliverer, this Messiah, would be Jesus Christ. Daniel didn't know that. He just knew what he was seeing and he wrote it down. So 
here we are, we see this dragon come onto the scene. And what we find out is that this dragon is described having these diadems in his crown. All of these beautiful rocks that, that show that he has dominion and that he's crowned in glory. And yet what 2 Peter chapter 2 verse, verse 4 says is this. It says that God did not spare the angels who sinned, speaking of those, those a third of the angels that were taken down by the dragon's tail, but he cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah. So all a part of his judgment is he's not only going to judge mankind for their sin, but Satan and the third of the angels that follow him will also be judged. And did you know this, that hell was never created for mankind? Hell was actually a place reserved to judge the angels who rebelled against God to purify not only the earth, but to purify heaven. Did you know that heaven has been tainted by sin because of the rebellion, because of the angels who sinned against God? And so we've seen all the way leading up to this, God's purifying the world. He's making it clean again. He's judging, but he's also going to judge the angels. And so back in chapter 12 of Revelation, we see this. Satan fell. And then there's this conflict also described in Genesis chapter 3. Now we're doing a lot of page turning this morning, but the Bible is just filled with this battle that we're getting ready to read about. Genesis chapter 3 verse 13, the age-old story. They were told not to eat of the tree, and then they did, and then they blamed one another, and then God gets involved and he speaks to Adam and Eve. And in chapter 3, verse 13, after the blame game's over, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so God said to the serpent, this curse, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle. And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity or, or war between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's war between the woman and the enemy, between Satan and the woman. So Satan wants to stop Messiah from reversing the mess that Satan made. S Satan stopped this rescue plan, he thinks. But God's got another plan. He's going to like double cross him. And so in the midst of this, we see this woman, the seed of the woman. Now that makes no sense because in the reproductive process, the woman carries the egg, not the seed, right? So what's the seed of the woman? Well, we know from the New Testament that Messiah came through a virgin birth. So the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary and she conceives and breathes forth a son, this son being the Messiah that would bruise the serpent 
and the serpent would bruise the heel of Messiah. But in the meantime, what it says is that this red, this fiery dragon is ready to devour the child as soon as it's born. Well, if you remember in Matthew chapter 2, there's this drama that takes place that we read every year at the time of Christmas. Because though Christmas is a joyous occasion for us, when Jesus was born, there was a dragon, spiritually and physically speaking, ready to devour and destroy the Messiah the moment he was born. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 7. It says, Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, the, the ones that traveled from far east, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the young child. When you found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy or devour him. When he arose, he took the young child, his mother by night, and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, he was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put the, to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are now dead." Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, came into the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. He came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So we have this story unfolding that we're reading in Revelation, and then we also see the practical reality happening in the life of Jesus and his parents, that as soon as he was born, Satan was trying to make sure he could be killed. Think about it. It's not even a battle. Satan's trying to kill a baby, a child, 
an unfair advantage, but Satan does not care about being fair. He cares about him and himself only. And he'll do whatever he can to keep getting to do what he wants to do. But what we find out in Revelation 12 is that no matter how much he fights to get his will done instead of God's, that God's bigger. As a matter of fact, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, You, speaking to Christians, are of God, little children. You have overcome them, the world, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So that's the good news, right? So God's going to have the ultimate victory. So the male child, verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And so this child, Jesus Christ, He was called to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And if you read Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, that's how it describes the Messiah. He would rule, he would break in pieces the nations like a rod of iron would. Like a rod of iron would crush clay. And then Revelation chapter 2, verse 27 also speaks to this same truth. But it also says of this male child, Not only would he rule all nations with a rod of iron, but he was also caught up to God and God's throne. Well, if you look at this, many surmise that it's talking about the 144,000, the Jewish male virgins that were called to be evangelists a couple of chapters ago. Uh, and, And I think in some ways we could say that these men were all caught up to God According to Revelation chapter 14, verse 3, they are caught up to God in his throne three and a half years into the great tribulation. And they were also protected by God's seal, and they were not destroyed until they were caught up. But they're not the fulfillment of the ruling of all nations with the rod of iron. Only Jesus can fulfill that prophecy. So he was caught up to God and his throne. And this is described in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. The, the book of Acts starts with the acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. After his resurrection, he stands on the Mount of Olives, he speaks to his disciples, and then he what? He, he not only rises from the dead, but now he's on the top of the Mount of Olives. He ascends up into the heavens with witnesses in the sight of others. And, and it's so amazing to the disciples, by the way, that they did what you and I would do. They stared and gawked, like, did that, did, did that just happen? And then two angels miraculously show up and go, what are you doing? Why are you still standing here? Don't you know that he's departed, but he's going to come back again? Get to work. And so in the same way that we would to children that we leave at the house to do chores, we get ready to leave and go, hey, I haven't left yet, but get started. I'm going to return And Jesus had just given them the great commission, which was, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all the things that I've taught you. And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the age. So then when he ascends and they're standing there, the angels come along and say, what are you doing? Get to work. You know what your chores are. 
You know what you're supposed to be about, or your father's business. But then in Acts chapter 7, verse 56, Stephen is being stoned to death. They're calling him a blasphemer for claiming that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he's the son of God. And they start stoning him to death in the streets. And as they're doing this, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then as he's getting ready to die, he's not crying out, oh, this hurts so much. He's looking up to heaven where his only hope is, by the way, if he's dying. And he says, I see the father and I see Jesus sitting at his right hand. That's what he sees. He's looking forward to the only hope that can save him. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the writer of Hebrews also points this out. Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. In chapter 12, verse 2. Actually, I'll start in chapter 12, verse 1. The writer says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, that he sits down at the right hand of the throne of power, and he is able to intercede for us even during this time. So I know that that's a, a lot of walking around the scriptures, but we see Jesus as the fulfillment of this male child. He's not only caught up to God, but he also will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And it says there, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, and that they should feed her there 1,260 days. This number keeps coming up. 1,260 days, three and a half years, uh, 42 months, I think. And so as we see this, we see that it's talking about Jesus, and it's talking about this woman, not as the Virgin Mary anymore, but it's talking about this woman, the nation of Israel, who has fled to the wilderness because of persecution during the Great Tribulation period. So in verse 7, we continue on, and it says, A war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, and he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Technical knockout. Full knockout. The battle has been complete is what he's announcing. So positionally, I want to point something out. The battle is over. We don't war against flesh and blood. 
But we battle against principalities and powers of the darkness and the dark world that is unseen. But the battle is accomplished. When Jesus was saying, it is finished, he was talking about salvation. He was talking about this cosmic battle we're looking at. It's all complete, and yet what, from our perspective right now, it's still being fought. But we have a different thing going on than every other battle that's ever taken place. Have you ever watched a movie the second time? One of those movies where it's like, how's it going to end? It's kind of suspenseful. But the second time you watch it, it's a little more enjoyable because you know how it's going to end. We are living in a sequel. We're living in a movie that you've already seen and we already know how it's going to end. And so the battles aren't nearly as stressful. Or at least in this case, Revelation is revealing that the battle has already been accomplished. That victory in Jesus isn't just a song. It's a reality that's not yet been fulfilled from our perspective. But from heaven's perspective, the battle's over. We know who wins. We know who gets the victor's crown. We know who gets the right to reign afterwards. We already know that. That is meant to comfort us today. That's meant to comfort us now so that the things that we experience, we can go, that's okay. I'm trusting that God's already waged this warfare. He's already won the battle. I don't need to strategize. I need to follow his strategy. And so here we have this war in the heavenlies, the battle behind the scenes. Apparently, Satan doesn't get to fight Jesus. He doesn't get to fight the the heavyweight champion. The heavyweight champion's not needed. Who fights Satan? God's minions, the angels, because Jesus isn't needed. Satan's not a match for him. And so he sends his angels and they battle him. Now, wait a minute. Why would Satan need to be cast out of heaven? Hasn't he already been cast out? Isn't that what happened at the fall? Yes and no, because if you read the book of Job, who's in heaven accusing Job? Satan. Jesus, or God actually even says, he says, have you considered my servant Job? And and it says that Satan's there talking to him where God is. And so apparently he has the right to get it. He has access. But in this battle, all of a sudden access is denied. He's no longer allowed to be in heaven. He's no longer allowed to be in the presence of God because God is cleansing even heaven. He's sanctifying it. So he's cast out of heaven. Heaven's no longer a place that he's allowed to go. And in verse 9, we see Satan evicted completely. He's cast from heaven to earth, and it says a third of the angels are cast out with him. These are the third of the angels that have already decided on their own to follow Satan and to serve him. They followed Satan. Their end will be like his. You become like the God you worship. You become like the God you serve. You experience the same thing. So everlasting darkness and chains are reserved for them. Jude chapter or Jude verse 6. So this is what God has accomplished. It's, it's spoken of right here in this passage. Salvation, it's been accomplished. If you, are under, if, you, if you have Jesus' blood applied to your life, if you've believed in your heart, confessed with your mouth, you are saved. 
Nothing can take that from you. Works can't add that to you. You cannot do enough good to save yourself. Your salvation, if you have it, is based solely upon what Jesus has already accomplished. Now your works, the things that produce from your life, prove whether or not you're saved. They don't save you. They prove whose you are. The stuff that comes out of your mouth, the way that you live your life, the sin that you do or don't do, it proves who you're trusting in. Is this a work of the flesh or a work of the spirit? Those who walk in the spirit will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who walk continually in the flesh will inherit the kingdom of Satan and they will be cast in the everlasting fire just like he is. But if you are saved, then salvation, strength, the kingdom of our God, the power of his Christ has come. It's here. His dominion is already being exercised. And for us, the accuser of the brethren who used to accuse the brethren day and night has already been cast down and he will be eternally. But no more. Jesus accomplished his defeat on the cross. And yet, what I would submit to you is that he still is roaming about, seeing who can, he can tempt, he's seeing who he can accuse, he's seeing who he can, what kind of strife he can stir up, he's still at work. But on this day, in this passage, what we see is in the great tribulation period, he will be finally shut down completely. So verse 11, that's what's happened positionally. Positionally, if we're in Christ, Satan has no more power over us. Satan can no longer tempt us because we're following Jesus Christ. But practically, the war is still going, right? The temptation still happens. We still have this battle between good and evil taking place. So what I want to read to you is verse 11, where it says, They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So he's been cast to earth. What it says is blessing and honor and strength and dominion and power to those who are in the heavens. Remember chapter 4 and 5, the faithful, the saints, those who follow Jesus, Christians have been tucked away in heaven where Christ is seated. And so for them, Satan's been cast out. It's the best place ever to be. But to those who are still on earth during this time, to, to those who are still on the seas, <laughs> woe. Woe unto them because dominion is given to him and he knows his time is short, so he's going to do some death rolls. He's like the alligator show. You know, what is that one where they, the guy says, shoot him. You know, it's from a few years back now, but you know, he goes out in his boat and he, he sets up these things with like nasty chicken on it, on a string with a hook. It's like fishing for alligators. You gotta be nuts. You know, I, I, the boots are cool, don't get me wrong, but I don't know if it's worth all this. But they go out in the swamp, they have their, their jigs set up, tied to big trees, and then they leave a hook with nasty meat on it just above the water, and then the alligator grabs it, 
and he's caught until the guy shows back up. I don't know how PETA hasn't stopped that, but, you know, it just seems like, but we still do it, right? And, and so I'm glad that they do it. We need to keep the population of alligators down. But as they catch the alligator, uh, they get up to it, next to it with their boat. They start grabbing things. They got to wear gloves. The guy, I think the main character is missing a finger because he's been doing this for a while. And, and then they get a gun out, which is not nearly big enough, in my opinion, and they shoot him in the head. And then they pull him into the boat, and it usually just about sinks the boat. It seems like the most dangerous thing you could do, but I kind of want to try it. But all of that being said, they, they kill this animal, but as they're pulling him towards the boat, what you know is when he knows his time is short, he's got a hook in his mouth, there's a boat close, there's men grabbing on and pulling he knows his time is short. What's he do? He moves as much as he can because he wants to stay alive. He doesn't care if he pulls somebody in. He doesn't care if he kills anybody. He wants to save his own life, his own skin, literally. And so he starts rolling and rolling and rolling. And, and you need to chew them before that happens. And that's what's happening. Satan's doing the death roll. He says, I'm, I'm going to get out and I'm going to get mine. He knows his time is short, and so during this time, he starts to death roll. And when he death rolls, as, as the time gets greater and as birth pangs happen in society, he wants to take us as the church and divide us over little petty things. He will get us to argue about the carpet color. He will get us to argue about whether or not to have church during coronavirus. He will get us to argue about blacks versus whites. He will get us to argue about the things that are on the news so that we will be divided and have no purity, no power, and definitely no love for one another or for the lost world. And so Satan's in this death row right now. So in this time, if we're going to fight the battle and be on the right side of things, it's going to take faith, hope, and love. It says those who overcame in the great tribulation period, it will be because of the word of their testimony, but it'll also be because they're trusting in the blood of the lamb to cover their sins and to live and walk in that victory. But the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. I'm going to read to you the, what the New Living Translation says, I thought. Oh, there it is. I've got three points there. Faith, uh, they trusted in the blood of the Lamb. Without the blood of the Lamb, without trusting in the blood of Jesus for your salvation, there's no atonement. You're not made right with God. You cannot do anything else to be saved. But then hope, they needed hope. They needed to continually confess, this is what Jesus has done in my life. Those are words of hope. Don't ask me how many Bible verses to share with the lost. Bible verses don't share people. Share your testimony. Introduce them to Jesus, and then the Bible verses will help confirm and encourage that faith. But then love. Notice this. I wrote this down from the New Living Translation. It says, They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they didn't love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. I don't know about you, but that hits home with me. Do I love my life so much that I'm afraid to die? If we're afraid to die, we ain't getting in the boat and trying to fight the alligator. 
that guy's got just enough of a healthy fear to be careful and wear gloves that's shooting the alligator. But he's, all, he's also got just a little bit of, I'm not afraid to die. It's what I do. I'm an alligator hunter. As Christians, we should be, we should be hunters. I'm afraid to die. The battle's already been won. If I'm a casualty, so what? I get to go straight to be with Jesus. Look at the Apostle Paul. He said, to live is Christ. Christ lives in me. Christ will live through me. But to die, it's gain. I go straight to the victor's throne. I left it all out there. You ever talk to a cross-country runner who goes and runs every day? They get to the race. You, you want to run hard the whole time. You want to run the entire time. And when you get to the end, you don't want to be sad that you didn't use every bit of energy you could and get a little better time. And so at the end, many times coaches will go, you got 100 yards left. What are you doing? Go! Spend it all. Win. We can do that knowing that even if we spend it all and it kills us, straight to the throne room, straight to our Heavenly Father. I don't know about you guys, but that convicts me because I love to be comfortable. And Christ came down and he gave up all the comforts of heaven to accomplish victory on my behalf. How could I not want to spend everything I got to live in that victory as if it's already been won, confident in what Christ has done. And so all that to be said, and I've completely left my slides, but the point I want to make is that they had victory because they trusted Jesus only. Not my job situation, not my college situation, not my 401k, not anything, not in relationships, but just Jesus. They had hope because they remembered that God's past faithfulness proves that he's going to be faithful in the future. They shared their testimony, but they also listened to other people's testimony. And they didn't love their lives so much that they were afraid to die for the ultimate good. Verse 13, Jesus has accomplished victory, and then Satan goes into the death roll. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, He persecuted the woman even more. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. He persecuted the Jewish people. You look through history, the people, the least amount of people in a major nation that everybody knows are in Israel. And yet they've been persecuted more than any other religion. What we find out is this is Satan's plan. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, the Israel people. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for time and times and half a time. A time is a year, times is two years, and a half a time. Do the math, three and a half years. Again, the same number. So she's flying out to the wilderness. She's given wings like an eagle, Isaiah 40. Those who wait upon the the, the Lord will be given wings of eagles. They'll mount on, up on wings like eagles and they'll soar. And she's taken to this place of refuge where she's nourished for time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent, while she's in this place, spews water. Now, wait a minute. Described as a serpent, described as a dragon. But what do dragons spew out? 
fire. What the heck? He spews out water. Their enemies are coming after them like a flood. Remember, this is allegorical. So I believe that this is an army that God, or that the God of this age, Satan, unleashes on the people of Israel. And I want you to notice that this is the showdown. The woman's tied to the tracks. The bad guy's in the train going, <laughs> and the good guy's about to run up on the scene, untie the ropes, and punch in the throat the stinking train and knock it over. The, the wiles of the enemy are always stoppable by, by Christ. And so without romanticizing it too much, let's just read the text. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman. See, the earth is subject to the reign of Christ. We just read that in the beginning of this chapter that he might cause her to be helped, carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth, swallowed up the flood, which the dragon spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. He went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the good guy wins. Now, the people of God practically are being taken away quickly. If you remember the story of Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah the prophet and kings, basically Elijah calls this drought for three and a half years. And he's just one against the, the prophets of Baal. He's called down fire. And Ahab and Jezebel get really mad. And so they, Jezebel starts chasing Elijah. Elijah flees to the wilderness and God hides him for three and a half years, James says, and he feeds him with a raven. A raven's a meat-eating bird, but the bird goes and gets food and brings it to Elijah. And he, he keeps him alive for three and a half years, miraculously. In the same way, the nation of Israel is going to be fleeing from persecution and is going to go to a place called Petra, which is across the Jordan River in Jordan itself, the country. And this place is there. It's this fortress. It's surrounded by rock ledges on the other side of the Jordan. And many believe this is where God will take his people. And they believe that because in Isaiah chapter 16, verse 1 through 4, there's a place called Selah in Jordan that is also known as Petra. And God will take them away and he'll protect them and he'll nourish them there. It's a wadi or it's a uh, oasis in the desert where there's a fortress of rocks all the way around him, and he'll protect him there. But what you also know about being in a valley is if your enemies come after you in there, you got nowhere to go. So the only way for them to be protected is if a flood of an army comes in there, is if the earth literally opens up and swallows their enemies. God's going to show himself faithful to protect her, once again, the nation of Israel. And so you would think... Satan would see this and go, oh, wow, I'm fighting against somebody I can't beat. But he continues to thrash and try to kill as many as he can, leading up to the time where God will bind him and shut him down and put him in the fiery furnace for eternity, separated from God. So all this to say, what, what, what can we take away from this? God is faithful to his promises. God protects 
those who are his. Not like you and I would protect somebody else's kid or somebody else's family, but like you and I protect the ones that we love the most. He goes to war. He shuts our enemies down. And the war has already been won. So we can walk around like, oh, God's not in control and life's getting hard. Or we can walk around in faith and go, this stinks, but my God has the last say. My God has already gone as far as he needs to go to deliver me from whatever can happen to me in this life. So turn with me to Romans 8, and we'll close. Romans 8. Let's see, let's start in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore also has risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Who accounts us as sheep for the slaughter but Satan himself? Yet, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's past tense. He's already loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing, nothing. What is it that you're feeling like has stopped God's plan in your life lately? What is the thing that's weighing you down? This battle that we read about today may seem far off and way more big picture than you can see things. I struggle with that myself. But the point is that God is and has already fought for us. He proves his love for us in that while we were still sinning against him, Christ died for the ungodly. So if now you're in Christ instead of an enemy of Christ, how much more can you expect him to protect and take care of every little detail? Stop trying to protect yourselves. Start letting him do it. Stop trying to do all you can to make yourself comfortable or defend yourself. Let Christ defend you. He's able. He is doing it now. Just let him. Sometimes if we can be just quiet, then then they can hear him protect us rather than us trying to do it on our own. I hope this meets you at where, where you're at today. Father God, thank you for your word which is able to make one wise unto salvation. Thank you for your word that is able to comfort 
by your Holy Spirit. I pray for these here today that you would help them to see that the victory has been won, that they don't have to strive for victory or even for perfection. But our job is to trust in the blood of the Lamb, to testify of your goodness, and to not love our lives so much that we're afraid to die. To be valiant in victory, and at the same time to trust the one who is the victor. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your pursuing love. We thank you for your sacrificial love. And Father, I pray that we would trust alone in you to be the one that will ultimately defend us eternally. In Jesus' name, amen.